Welcome to the Jam Session. I'm your host, John Landis, the Jam Session Radio Hour, uh, which we bring to you on Sunday nights at 8, and pleased to do so. Lately, we've been doing some uh, some interviews, um, bringing you some interviews of interesting jazz musicians, um, some of the real highlights, um, stars of our uh, generation. And uh, these come courtesy of uh, NYU, the NYU Jazz Interview Series. Uh, we've brought you so far John McLaughlin, uh, two of those, uh, two of Tom Scott, saxophonist, uh, two of uh, Peter Erskine. Uh, and now we are bringing you Mike Maneri, and we're bringing you three episodes. This is the first of three of uh, Mike Maneri, who's uh, noted has had a long career as a vibraphonist. Really, really interesting interview that Dave Schroeder uh, does uh, with Mike Maneri. Uh, done probably about three years ago, I think 2017. This is part of this jazz interview series from NYU. Um, so Mike has played with um, various bands, starting way back with uh, um, a trio that he put together and toured with Paul Whiteman, uh, played with Buddy Rich, played with a lot of people, played with Steps and Steps Ahead, really formed those, uh, part of the, the formation of those groups. So let's listen tonight to uh, uh, the first of three sessions uh, from the interview with Mike Maneri. Welcome to the NYU Steinhardt Jazz Interview Series, and tonight we have legendary vibraphonist, composer, band leader, producer, arranger, arranger, man about town, Mr. Mike Minieri. <laughs> nice to be here. So we have uh, a lot of information to get through, so we're going to move quickly. How quick? Not too well, quick. Yeah. Not as quickly as that we're history class. Eight decades here. Eight decades. I just turned 80. Wow. Yeah, in July. July 4th. <clears throat> July, July 4th? Yes. Ah. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, so you didn't just turn 80. then. You just yes, past July, July 4th. 4th. There's, a, there's many periods of music that you've been involved with, but I, I want to talk about you growing up in New York and, I guess, a Jewish-Italian family. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're, you're kind of in vaudeville, in fact, right? You start off your family or... Let's talk about it. I, I'm yeah, not, I'm not I was born uh, in, in the Bronx in a sort of a very, what they now call ghettos, but it was a very poor neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, we lived on the fifth floor, which now, of course, you pay much more money for living on a fifth floor. But then fifth you paid less. You paid less money because it was a walk-up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> my family, uh, we it was about nine people living in three rooms. It was the Depression, and they were really into jazz. They loved jazz, and that was, that was the music that was that we were listening to on the radio. Was that days. your parents and your my, grandparents? My, my father was a tap dancer, so was his brother. They had a little team. Uh, they used to play some of the vaudeville gigs. Uh, my, I had one uncle who was a singer-songwriter in the 20s, played in all the speakeasies. And uh, two other uncles uh, who played several instruments, as we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. He played drums, saxophone. And my step-grandfather, who was a really great rhythm guitarist, who was really instrumental in me, me uh, learning harmony and how to play changes and inversions and stuff like that. So it was, and everyone, and we would put on these sort of far, I should say, fake radio shows 
on the weekends. We'd all gather together, even some other relatives. And I had one uncle who would announce the show, and everybody, everyone would sing or dance. And when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I started playing the vibes, and they'd feature. And now Mike Manuri, you know, is going to play Stardust, and my step-grandfather would accompany me. Later on, my brother was, started playing guitar. How did the vibes show up in your apartment? My mother, because she's, uh, she just said, um, put away the, the glove and the stick ball, uh, <laughs> stick mm. bat, stick ball bat. Um, <clears throat> I want you to play the vibraphone. I said, the vibraphone, like, like Hampton, because I knew who Hampton was. Uh, she said, no, I've been listening to Marjorie Himes on the radio. Now, Marjorie Himes was the, I think she was the first vibraphonist to play with George Shearing. Mm. And she had a radio show outside, out of Chicago. And it was a really mellow kind of jazz. And my mother loved it. And she thought, I should play this instrument, which we could not afford at all. And my father said, are you crazy? The, you know, where do we buy a vibraphone and how much does it cost? You know? She said, don't worry about it. And she went to work in a sweatshop for about two years, saved all the money, and bought me my first two and a half octave vibraphone. Actually, the, the resonators were made out of cardboard. Wow. It was made during the war when they were trying to save metal for the war. A Deegan vibraphone. Surprising that they even had a vibraphone because all those instruments were collected for the war effort. Yeah, I, just the, the last resonator was made out of metal. The rest of them were cardboard. Was it new or was it a... It was used. Uh, it was used. But how do you, how do you gain... Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're in an academic experience here. Mm -hmm. you know, everything is like prescribed. This is how you play music. It's chords and scales. How did you do it back then? Well, you know, I was born... I was born on the kitchen table. <laughs> <laughs> I was. My mother, <clears throat> we were poor, we couldn't afford a doctor and all that, so it was midwife, kitchen table. And what was playing in the next room, it was Django Reinhardt. My grandfather was really into Django, being a guitar player. Uh -huh. So like from when I was, the day I was born, and, and of course my family were into jazz, they loved jazz, was constantly listening to, you know, whether it be Goodman or Ellington, Basie. And then as I became a little older, like six, seven, eight years old, they'd take me to Broadway, the Broadway shows get to hear the Dorseys, you know, this is the 40s. Uh -huh. So like, I was surrounded by all this amazing music and it somehow, I internalized it. And when I started taking lessons at about 10 or 11 years old, my mother found a vibraphone teacher for me. I don't know how, you know, I never really found out the truth. But anyway, we had to take three subways to get all the way down to the Bowery where this vibraphonist by the name of Lem Leach <laughs> lived in a funky one room. He was completely alcoholic. And, and she'd bang on the door and she said to me, Michael, you wait outside. I have to go. And my mother was really a tough gal. And she'd have to go in there and sort of wake him out of, shake him out of his, you know, <laughs> his, his uh, drunkenness, you know, you and she'd bring some wine also, a bottle of wine and $3 <laughs> for a lesson. How did she find him? I don't know how she f actually found him. She might have found him through, because uh, we had some, some connections, but we were talking about Adrian Rolini. Mm -hmm. 
So it might have been Rolini saying, oh, I know this vibraphonist, you know, who's teaching now. And, he, and he's the one that, well, taught me to play in this sort of weird grip that I use, mm -hmm. the Miniri grip. And so the first, my first lesson was 2-5, you know, 2-5, it was T for 2. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, and of course it modulates, and you're in the key of C. It's an A flat, then you're in C, and you're playing two fives, right? So, and I, and I just took to it right away, and he said, now, you can improvise on this. And I didn't really know too many scales. I had taken a few piano lessons, and I, mm -hmm. so I, I had gone through, played a little Bach, uh, you know. But I, I could hear, within two or three lessons, the idea of improvising, and because I was also tap dancing, rhythmically, it felt pretty natural. You know, usually when kids are learning to play, you know, improvise, rhythmically, they're, not, they're all over the place. I had really good time, you know, from the get-go. How, How old were you when you took your first vibes lesson? I must have been about 11 or 12, 12 I think. And within, and I'm not bragging, within two years, I had a tr put together a trio called Two Kings and a Queen. <laughs> it was a bass player who was 16, I was 14, and a w young lady who was a really good guitar player, she was 16, and we auditioned for the Paul Whiteman television show. And we won, the you know, it was like a contest. So it was, I had to join the union, so I was a union member. I've been a un union member from I don't know if anybody joins the union anymore, I doubt it, from 1952. And I started doing all these kids' television shows, like Gad, even mm -hmm. if you've ever interviewed Gad, or say Gene Bertoncini, guitarist who I grew up with. That's what we did to get out of the ghetto. Was just, either we became an athlete, a boxer, you know, or a musician. And what TV shows were you on? Kids and Company, uh, The Children's Hour, which was a, every Sunday morning. That was a big show. We just we did all of those. So you were just a the Mickey Mouse Club. What? You were just an act that they. We were an act, and then and then went with Whiteman because we had won so many weeks in a row. We started doing his radio show, and then we did some little touring gigs with him. We were sort of a unique little trio, you know. It's just like I looked. I was this big, you know. It's like just. Like so did like Paul this. Whiteman talk to you? Yeah, pops. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talk about Whiteman in my uh, history class. And, Do you? Uh, well, it's well, we talk about him in the 1920s. It's so wonderful that you, you're doing that. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But you, you mentioned that you're teaching a course in the history of mm -hmm. jazz. So, like, I do a lot of these workshops all over the the world. And I'll mention Paul Whiteman and just, I'll look out there and I'll just see faces. <laughs> I have no idea who Paul Whiteman is. And then even, you know, closer to the 40s and 50s of musicians that I've played with, the young people just really have no idea who these, you know, who these yep. amazing musicians are, like Adrian Rolini. Right. Yeah. Well, we were talking about, uh, just for my students here, we were talking about uh, Adrian Rolini and for you guys that are in my class, you know that he was uh, a bass saxophonist in the 20s, like the premier bass saxophonist. He was the, he was the cat. That uh, functioned as the bass player. He was on quite a few records, too. Right, but the, the thing that's not well known is that later on when the bass saxophone became passe, 
he switched to vibraphone. But uh, we might think that it's uh, crazy for a saxophonist to play vibraphone. But we were talking before the swing era, before big bands uh, stylized um, and categorized musicians. And you're going to be a trombone player. You're going to be a saxophone player. Right. You're no longer a pianist or a violinist. This is when people started to move away from playing multiple instruments. It's true. When you asked me, do you know who Adrian Rolini is? Yeah. I answered, I went to see him when I was like 15 or 16 years old. I still have a little card from the <laughs> that they put on the table, the Adrian Rolini trio. And I walked in with my father and my brother, who also played guitar, as I mentioned. And Rolini was playing piano. He had a guitarist, a bass player, and a piano. He had a set of vibes here and a set of chimes behind him. So he not only played the amazing bass saxophonist, mm -hmm. but he was... He basically really came up with the Burton tech, what they call the Burton technique, because he played with four mallets all the time and never looked at the keys. He just would play all of this amazing stuff and put the lead mallet up here and then played with two chime mallets, would play solos on the chimes. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to WLIW, 
FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York. Also heard on liwliw.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and you're listening to an interview of Mike Maneri. It was really fun. Well, you know what's interesting about that? When you see Sonny Greer playing with uh, pictures of him playing with uh, Duke Ellington, yeah. there's always chimes. Chimes. Behind Timpani him. sometimes have gone, yeah. But I, I don't recall ever hearing any recordings where he's actually playing chimes. Well, Whiteman had all of that, and you yeah. know, Chris Whiteman had, you know, a huge percussion section. Mm -hmm. When Lionel Hampton played with Benny Goodman, it was kind of revolutionary because at that time, the big band era had uh, become the pop music of the day, right? And so when he brought that new instrument in, it was kind of like he really modernized, came up with a new uh, gimmick, maybe, um, and that brought the vibraphone into the swing era, I think, and maybe Red Norvo. But um, do you know what Artie Shaw did to counteract the vibraphone? So we're thinking about, we don't have electronics yet, so what is it that you can add to your group that will make a splash like the vibraphone did? And uh, Artie did it with a group called the Gramercy Five. Oh, really? So that was his hook. But what was the, what was the instrument? Oh, I have no idea. It I was, mean, I... It was... <laughs> are you ready? Johnny Guarneri playing harpsichord. Huh, you got to be kidding. No. He was my neighbor. <laughs> in the Bronx. Really? <laughs> he was, yeah, for a while, and then he moved, of course. Did you the, know him in the Bronx? No, I didn't. He was much, he was he was much older, older sure. than, than I, but I knew his family. <sighs> but there's a, there's a ton of records out there, the Gramercy Five with oh, harpsichord. That is totally wild. I didn't know that. So, all right. Thank you. Good night. Okay. <laughs> nice seeing you. <laughs> now, I, I want to I move, move. I know your parents were, were showbiz people, and they were helping to promote you. And I've talked to you in the past about this, too. It's like when your parents took you to see Buddy Rich. How old were you? Well, they didn't take me. Actually, uh, <clears throat> One of the older musicians that I used to hire, I think that's where I was headed, ah. is how I managed to work my way into the situ a situation where I met Buddy. Mm -hmm. And the drummer that I was working with, it was in his 40s. I'm like 19. And uh, he was a really good friend of Buddy's. As a matter of fact, I think he followed Buddy on one of the big bands. I don't know if it was Harry James' band or the Dorsey band. And he kept telling Buddy, you gotta hear this kid, Mike Muneer, he's a really great vibes player. And they just hounded him for about a year. And Buddy used to go all the way to the Bronx to have a nice big Italian dinner with this guy, <laughs> Pete Folo. And uh, he said, I don't need a, the last vibe player drove me crazy, it was Terry Gibbs. He's like, I don't need another vibes player in the band. And, just, and he kept bugging him. Long story short, Buddy was doing a, a gig, I, I believe it was at the Village Gate. It was down in the Village. And he said, all right, have the kid come down. I'm going to do like three shows. And we'll just have him sit in. And there so, was a vibraphone there? No, my, I brought it from, from uh -huh. the house. I packed it up and put it in my father's... My father's uh, wagon, station wagon, and what I was, where I lost that train of thought was I made enough money to move my family by the time we were, I was 18 out of the Bronx and bought him a house in Yonkers and I bought my father a car. And um, 
I'm not bragging, but it was just, it all sort of kind of worked out. So dad got the station wagon, he would take me to all the gigs, took me down <clears throat> for the Buddy Rich audition. And he, and he made me wait till the third set, of course. <laughs> and um, it was a packed house. And said, there's a kid in the audience there, and he's wearing a suit that looks like, a zoot suit that looks <laughs> like he borrowed it from his father. Says he can play the vibes, you know, in typical Buddy Rich mm -hmm. uh, manner. He's caustic, you know, acerbic. Uh, he says, uh, all right, kid, why don't you come up? So we, we schlepped the vibes up on the stage, and he the first tune, Cherokee. One, two, one, two, three, four. Ba, 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 ba. Oh, yeah, we play the head. He says, you got it. And I was like, 40 choruses later. I mean, I'm like, I'm still playing. Wow. And, and so I, I, after I finished my solo, the entire, entire audience stood up, gave me a standing ovation, and then he said, well, I guess I gotta hire this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and there I was.
like a week later, I was playing at Birdland, opposite, I think it was not, it wasn't uh, the Jazz Messengers, it was Horace Silver. Because mm. they always had two bands. This was a small group with Buddy? Yeah, I, always, I only played with a small group. Mm -hmm. I never played with a big band. No, I just didn't want to be a part of that. Mm. That came later, when he, like in the, the late 60s, he started. So what year was this? That you first this is like 59, I think, or, or 58, something, somewhere in there. So, 58, 59, that was a really seminal period in jazz with all the kind of blue giant steps. All oh, these that things one year, out. I mean. Yeah. That I was listening. I just, I just did something at the, with the WDR band, Cologne, not to just go like this. Mm -hmm. But Bob Mincer uh, was doing all the arrangements, and we were just listing all the albums that came out in 59, and we just could not believe, because we were trying to choose pieces from that year. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty amazing. You ought to check it out. It's just. So did you have time to go hear other music when you weren't playing? Well, I did. And it, what was great about Birdland, playing at Birdland, uh, or playing with Rich in those days, or playing with Blakey or Miles, whatever, any of those groups that were, <clears throat> were busy, is that now you're just constantly doing one-nighters, usually. You know, you're lucky if you've you got a week at Birdland, like we'll do that in New York. But Then it was three weeks at Birdland, and then you go down to Philly and play at Peps for two weeks, go down to Washington, or build Baltimore, play a week, go to Washington, D.C., play a week, go to Atlanta, there's a peach, a peach tree lounge, and play a week there in Miami make your way to New Orleans, to Kansas City. It was a week, two weeks at Baker's Keyboard Lounge in Detroit, go to Chicago, you know, at Blue Note in Chicago for two, three weeks. And by the time you just went around, you know, went around the country, you'd be right back in Birdland, you know, six months later. So, yes, and then usually there, was, there were two bands, which was amazing, because every time and I played Birdland. How many sets Birdland, per night? A lot of sets. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was like 8.30 to about 3 in the morning. Wow. And Buddy, Buddy hated playing the last set. So he'd always have, either be Philly Joe would sit in, Papa Joe, and Shaughnessy. I mean, all these great drummers would come in, because they came in to hear Buddy. Mm -hmm. And they would sit in. And so he'd split. <laughs> Jerry Mulligan <laughs> would sit in, usually on alto saxophone, sorry to say, but it was just like absolutely, you know. The worst, because uh, <laughs> he was, you know, hitting the bottle. But uh, but when he played baritone, that was, of course, lovely. You're listening to WLIW FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York. Also heard on LIWLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and you're listening to an interview of Mike Maneri. So... Who were the other musicians you go out and see? Did you get to see like Coltrane and Miles and all those guys? Well, I saw Coltrane and Miles at Birdland, but uh, I would get down to you know, other clubs and you know, got a chance to, earlier to play with, uh, do a high society gig with Billie Holiday. That was nice with Ruby. I don't know if you know who Ruby Braff Yeah, is. sure. Trumpet player. He used to put together these. Cornet? Did he play yeah, cornet? he played yeah. cornet. And he called me up to do something. This was this was earlier than Buddy Rich, as a matter of fact. But 
don't know why I dropped in there, but you got a chance to see Ella or whoever was in town, you know, whoever was playing on 52nd Street. You know. So Ruby hired you and she yeah, was... Yeah, Ruby hired me and he, he was, it was a, it was a society gig. There were two of them. One was at the Roosevelt Hotel. Uh -huh. Not, no, it was there then, in a ballroom. And it was Papa Joe on drums. I was subbing for Mill Jackson, who couldn't make the gig. <laughs> I was just a young, young guy. Um, and let me see, who was on bass? Uh, it's hard to remember all these people. I know it was uh, uh, Tyree Glenn was playing trombone. Remember that name? Uh -huh. uh, not Ben Webster, but Hawk was playing saxophone. Pretty wild, right? Uh -huh. That's pretty wild. Yeah, and drums, bass. I'm trying to think. Milt Hinton was playing bass, and uh, and Ruby, and myself. But the piano player was either like John Bunch or Marty Napoleon or one of those guys, uh -huh. one of the older cats. And we did two gigs. We did one there and one on a yacht up in Connecticut with Ruby in the same. And Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday was just on the, at the Roosevelt Hotel. They snuck her in. She sang two songs, she sat on a stool, sang two songs, and just whisked her away. And wow. Well, question for you. You're getting these gigs as a vibraphonist. Uh, was part of that in the 50s, 40s and 50s, there were very few vibraphonists? Was it hard to find somebody else? Uh, it was a short list? It was a short, pretty short list in, yeah. in, in New York. Because I was talking to John Abercrombie years ago, and he was saying when he moved to New York in the 60s, he said there was like five guitar players that could handle playing with a wah-wah pedal and playing the, the new fusion-type music. In the 60s? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a short list. And, and a lot of those guys played in my White Elephant Band. <laughs> mm. That album, we can oh, talk we'll about that, that later. Yeah. So there's a lot to talk about, but I, I want to move quickly to how I first got to know your music, and that was with uh, your group Steps Ahead. Oh, we, we're going to just go through a couple well, of decades. No, we're we're going to come back. We're, this <laughs> no, is no, I'm sorry. Roll. Let's go wherever you want to go. I'm because fine. that seems to be so, you know, it's like the people that know Steps Ahead and Mike Brecker and Don Grolnick and Steve mm -hmm. Gadd and Eddie Gomez, you know, we don't, I don't associate you with Milt Hinton and Coleman Hawkins and Billy Holiday. Right. Most most people would not. I think I think this is why we're here tonight to show that you've had a uh, eight uh, eight decades of uh, I don't know if all eight were amazing, but uh, well, I kind of lucked out with the uh, with steps ahead in the in the sense that uh, I joined the band in the '60s when the music started changing folk folk jazz folk mm -hmm. rock. And I started playing with Jeremy Steig, who was a flautist. Mm -hmm. It was an electric band. Warren Bernhardt, Eddie, Eddie Gomez was in the band. And uh, did, did Jeremy Steig play with Bill Evans because of Eddie? Well, they were friends, and so was Warren Bernhardt. Mm -hmm. Warren Bernhardt was rooming. He was a great pianist who has just turned 80 also. So wow. a very good wow. friend of mine. And Warren played... We've played together for many years. But Warren and Bill Evans roomed together. And Eddie, Eddie and, uh, was a very good friend of Warren's. And that's how we all met. And he was playing, Eddie was playing with Jeremy. 
and invited me, and also Joe Beck was guitarist was playing with with, uh, with Jeremy. So that's sort of that time, this the early '60s. I mean, middle '60s. It was Larry Coriel's group. I forget the name. He had a name for his his group. It was right before he joined Gary Burton's group, <clears throat> and Gary's group it was this was pre Bitches Brew. Uh-huh. So like that music, that fusion, whatever you, they call it, fusion a little later, but the jazz rock sort of mixing different genres really happened in the 60s. And how I lucked out was because I became, I stayed in New York, I stopped touring after Buddy Rich. Uh-huh. This is like 64. And I became an arranger, because I was arranging for Buddy, I started arranging for TV commercials and for record dates and stuff like that. And I was... I had so much work. I mean, there was so much work in New York. I'm looking at it, all your students. I mean, you, one week I did 33 dates. I'll never forget. Mm. 33 sessions. Producing or? Producing, playing on TV jingles, writing and everything. It was just, and it was like that every day for years. <laughs> for all the cats, you'd be sitting next to Bobby Brookmeyer, Kay Winding, you know, J.J. Johnson, Jerome Richardson, Snooky. You know, Thad Jones, I mean, and we were just playing on a, you know, deodorant commercial, you know, and at night we'd be playing with Wes Montgomery or somebody. So it was like this, this amazing time. And, but I was, we'd go down to the village, you know, because I was playing with Jeremy Stein. We backed up this folk singer, Tim Harden. We started traveling in the sort of the folk circles in the mm-hmm. 60s. And I got interested in that genre. You know, I electrify the vibes, I amplify the vibes, invented uh-huh. that pickup system. And, um, and because I was doing so many sessions as a producer and a, an arranger, at night a lot of the studios were dark, you know. And so I'd call up, you know, an engineer and, and I'd put together a jam session. I'd call up, you know, this bass player, a drummer, Donald McDonald, Joe Beck, uh, you know, uh, Randy Brecker, Michael hadn't come to, uh, Michael had, Brecker hadn't appeared on the scene yet. Uh-huh. But Randy Brecker, Lou Soloff, and, you know, sometimes five guys would show up, sometimes 25, 30, you know, so it became like this big, you know, cats would just come there to hang out after a day of playing all sessions, and there were singers, and I started writing for this big band, which was called White Elephant, and that I can... <laughs> I can show you a picture. Maybe you can get a close-up of it later. It's uh, pretty amazing. It, we did an album only because one of the engineers started recording the jam sessions. Mm. And we put out a double album. That was in like 71. But this started in like 67, 68. And then I won't go into a long story how I met Gad. It was through Chuck Mangione a session that I was booked on uh, by the producer and arranger Manny Album, uh-huh. you know, very well. And he's, there was big band and all of a sudden there was a guy with a hat and that was Chuck, walked in and he was the arranger. And his brother Gap, they were from Rochester, uh, brought his trio and in the trio was Steve Gadd who was from Rochester. Nobody knew who he was. Tony Levin was the bass player who had just finished, uh, graduated Eastman School of Music. And we said, oh, well, this is going to be a long day. Who are these guys? You know, <laughs> it's going to be a long session. And anyway, it, was, it was sounded great, you know. 
Chuck wrote really some lovely charts, but everybody walked out of that session saying, who the hell was that drummer, man? You know? So I went over and I got his name and Tony's name and slowly got Steve, Steve Gadd to come to New York and he appears on this album after the, uh, the original drummer left, left the group. Mm -hmm. So um, out of this group, you know, you wound up with a group called Ars Nova, Dreams, which was Randy and, and Michael's first group.
So you're getting a really good, uh, I think, uh, uh, sectional uh, introduction to Mike Maneri through his interview with Dave Schroeder. But I can fill you in a little bit. He's um, been a, vibra- a vibraphonist uh, for decades, um, started out very young, um, early won some, uh, some uh, talent contests and was recognized by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra and so toured with Paul Whiteman um, then later on recognized by Buddy Rich as being a phenomenon, toured with Buddy Rich um, and uh, uh, then spent years as a studio musician but playing with the likes of Wes Montgomery Benny Goodman, Coleman Hawkins uh, formed uh, an early fusion band called Jeremy and the Satters Um, And then later on formed Steps, uh, which later on became Steps Ahead, um, playing with the likes of Mike Brecker, uh, Don Grolnick, Eddie Gomez, Steve Gadd, and then later iteration of Steps Ahead um, with people like Peter Erskine, uh, whose interviews we've carried recently, Mike Stern, um, and uh, various others. So he's had a remarkable career. Um, in the 90s, he formed an NY, uh, the NYC record label, uh, put out um, during that period of time something called An American Diary, which is a great album. Um, so continue to, uh, to join us in listening to um, one of these three parts of a three-part series of interviews uh, of Dave Schroeder with Mike Maneri uh, with music that uh, has been uh, pulled into the interview series. And we, um, we thank Rafael Alvarez and Fernando Valaderos uh, for their contribution to choice of that uh, music. So let's continue to listen. You're listening to WLIW-FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York. Also heard on LIWLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and you're listening to an interview of Mike Maneri. And then later, <clears throat> I put together Mike Maneri Quintet at the... Uh, when I was playing at the Brecker Brothers Club, which was called 7th Avenue South. Uh-huh. It wasn't called Steps. And I had two groups. I had a, elect, my electric group with Bob Mincer playing electric cl- bass clarinet. Uh-huh. Wow. O- Omar Hakim on drums, who had just gotten out of college. And uh, I'm trying to think who was played bass. Uh, 
Eddie, Eddie for a while, but it was an electric bass player who produced Miles. Why can't I think of his name? Marcus Miller. Yeah. So Marcus and Omar went to school together. So I had Marcus Miller, Omar Hakim, Warren Bernhardt, and Bob Minster was my electric quintet that I recorded with and toured with. And then I had the acoustic band with Steve Gadd, Eddie Gomez, Don Grolnick, and Michael Brecker. So I had like two bands going. And a Japanese uh, writer happened to come to the club, journalist, I should say. Uh, her name is Kiki Miyake. I still remember her, Kiki. Hmm. And she taped one of our gigs and brought it back to Nippon Columbia in Japan. And, and they loved it. And she offered us you know, to come to Japan and make a couple of albums. But I couldn't call the band the Mike Manieri uh, Quintet because I was signed to Warner Brothers with the other band oh. <laughs> as a Mike Manieri Quintet. So I gave it a name. I called it Steps. Not Steps Ahead. That came later. Am I going too fast and too no, no, furious good. here? Good. So we went, to, we went to Japan with, with Gad and Brecker and Krolik and, and Eddie. And we played at the Pit Inn, which was a nightclub. Two sets a night, or maybe three. And during the day, we recorded an, a, an, a, another album, like two albums. Like it was day and night we were working. <laughs> Nobody slept, uh, which came out much later, uh, but a year later, it was called Step by Step. Mm -hmm. But the original album was called Smoking in the Pit. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge, huge success in Japan. It was a gold record within three months in Japan. And nobody knew who we were here in the States. Absolutely no. We were, within two years of, of smoking in the pit, we were playing for 5,000 people in Japan. I mean, it was just, you couldn't get in. There were kids at our, at our hotel room, like, like 50, 70 kids, like with signs and like, you know, hi, you're back again. You know, it was like we had this fan club. <laughs> and, and then here in the States, we couldn't even get, a, we couldn't get any gigs. Now this was before the Brecker Brothers hit the Brecker Brothers band. That's later. Yeah, that's later. That's much later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is this is 78. 79.
Thanks so much, so much for joining us for the first of a three-part series of uh, an interview by Dave Schroeder of NYU with Mike uh, Miniri. And uh, Mike is just a remarkable, remarkable guy, really affable and a great interview, and we appreciate so much the NYU uh, Jazz Interview Series. We want to thank uh, that series, Dave Schroeder in particular, his producers, Joseph uh, Villa, Ed Barada, uh, Shake Up Productions, made possible also by a gift from Selma Geller. I want to thank um, Silvana Monasterios for uh, our um, theme music from his um, piece called Tropical Mirage. Again, we want to thank Fernando Valaderos for helping choose music. For uh, Thank Rafael Alvarez uh, for his um, great work doing uh, post-production and uh, co-producing this. Thank you to Claes Brandal, the, the uh, musical director of the Jam Session Radio Hour. I'm your host, John Landis. Uh, we appreciate uh, WLIW carrying this. Uh, please continue to listen to WLIW.org uh, uh, slash radio or just on 88.3 FM. Um, stay well. Uh, uh, please um, stay well. And, and uh, we're nearing the end of this whole uh, debacle. And um, happy holidays. Um, again, John Landis signing off for the Jam Session Radio Hour. See you next week. Mm-hmm.